Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, and sitting across from me is Liam. How's it going, dude? Yeah, I'm all right, mate. Been enjoying some lovely weather today for a change. The sun is shining yet again. Yeah. yeah. Been out in the garden, had a couple of beers earlier, but not too many because otherwise I'd be shit-faced right now. <laughs> I'd be feeling good, but it probably wouldn't be bode very well for the listeners. There's a fine line, isn't there? Because, I mean, we always drink when we do the podcast, but there's a fine line between having enough beers that you can get, like, a fluid review going. Yeah. And so many beers where it just becomes a... a Stuttery, inconsistent, absolute clusterfuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky getting that balance right, but I think we do mostly okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So see how we are when we get to the premium. Yeah, <laughs> as always. Yeah, we do try. <laughs> Can I kick off with a joke? This yes, week, please do. Because I just read it earlier and it made me laugh, and it's stupid. But I just thought I'd, I like stupid. I too. thought I'd put it on the podcast. Um, it's uh, my English teacher told me I'd never be any good at poetry, but fuck you, Mister Phillips. So far, I've done two jugs and a vase. <laughs> Rubbish, I know. And I'm not sure why I went for the American pronunciation of vase, but there you go. Yeah. It's like a it's it's like a Tommy Cooper joke. Really. Yeah, you, just, yeah. Like, you know, if you had told that joke on stage and then done something bizarre, then it probably would have, you know, I don't know. It's a sign of my increasing age that dad jokes have suddenly become very, very funny to me. The thing is, dad jokes are funny. Yeah, well, I think so now. I don't think 20 year old me would have thought so. But something changes. But it's for, the reason the reason dads do jack, dad jokes to teenagers is because they're precisely looking for that. Oh, you're such a fucking yeah. loser reaction. And it's funny to see a stroppy teenager act like a stroppy teenage dick. I like pissing <laughs> off my family with yeah. really bad jokes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't exactly. know what that yeah. is. There's some weird a switch so, that flips. So because yeah. they're not lame, because they're motivated by malice, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, yes, let's start off with, oh, do you see um, Jim Steinman, what was it, Steinman? Steinman, yeah. The uh, um, famous musical composer did Battle of Hell and all that died this week. Well, what he did, what, Meatloaf's, what? Yeah, he did like Battle of Hell. What, the, what you mean, like the, because um, they did a, because Battle of Hell, they had the album, but didn't they also have some sort of concert film that went along with it or something? Yeah, and they did the musical a few yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, he died? Oh, yeah. Well, what I didn't realise, though, is quick interlude here because we are the film podcast what I didn't realise was just how many like amazing songs he wrote he did uh, Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart oh wow well, and um, Holding Out for a Hero and he also did um, some proper 80s bangers then yeah right. he did uh, was it Sisters of Mercy and uh, This Corrosion oh that's such a tune yeah that's such a fucking tune I, I always <laughs> like to stop because there's a tradition around my mum's house if you go to my mum's house for Christmas there's it's like a challenge every year where after Christmas dinner we will have to do the washing up but we, as we start to do the washing up, like one person's washing up, one person's drying, one person's putting things away. And you put on Bat Out of Hell, which is like 11 minutes long. And it's like the challenge, you have to do all of the washing up before Bat Out of Hell finishes while singing, <laughs> while singing along and like doing everything in time to the music. That's you know? awesome. I would highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I was really, really, I, I knew he composed a, a ton of stuff, a great songwriter for other people. I didn't realize just how many massive Massive hits. That's he incredible, had. man. Yeah. I had and, no, no idea he did Total Eclipse of the Heart. Well, yeah. And anyone listening now, after you've finished, if you've never heard this corrosion by Sisters of Mercy, please go and listen to it because it is a fucking awesome song. What's really funny about that, I've noticed, because we've played it in jukeboxes in pubs before. Yeah. And what's funny is watching everybody dance to it because everybody does like the goth shuffle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you sort of swing your yeah. sh shoulders a little bit <laughs> Absolutely, and your arms go yeah. floppy by your sides. Oh, yeah. man. It's so good. I mean, like yeah. The goth kids in South Park. Yeah. yeah. The amount, of, uh, the amount of times where all of us have been pissed down the wa the watering hole and that has come on uh, about half 10, 11 and everyone just completely gets into it. Yeah, yeah. It's, just it's make... really long as well. It's like nine minutes long. Oh, but it's, it's worth every it's minute. It's like that one chorus here yeah. repeated over and over again, but it's a very good chorus. It's so good. Anyway, yeah, I was determined not to call him. I really wanted to call him Steinberg. It's, it's Steinman. Yeah, but uh, what an amazing composer he was. Anyway, we are the Film and TV podcast. You've not tuned into the wrong channel. And uh, yeah, we've got some film news to get through, as we always do. Let's kick off with this. Tom Cruise has been spotted filming Mission Impossible on the North Yorkshire Moors. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the North Yorkshire Moors. That's the only reason I put it in, really, is it's just bizarre to think of Tom Cruise in Yorkshire. But uh, he is at the moment. Has he had any more uh, little tizzies recently? Not that we know of. We no. are not shutting this fucking movie down. Would you believe that he was filming an action scene um, <laughs> on top of a train? Uh, so I don't know what it is with Tom Cruise, the Mission Impossible franchise and trains, but boy, do they love them. And uh, this one's in Yorkshire at the moment. 
And yes, no one knows if he's had any more onset rants. I believe if he has, it's probably been kept very, very quiet. I imagine whoever leaked that was, uh, well, not fired, crucified, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, we've we've mentioned on the podcast a couple of times about how the guy has demonstrable talent and there's there's a ton of films with Tom Cruise that I do like a lot. And I think Great actor, yeah. I think he's a very, very talented guy, but Jesus Christ, he's a fucking weirdo, man. I really liked uh, American Made. Mm, that was very. Oh, what you showed me that that was very that's, enjoyable. That's actually. a good little film. Yeah, that. it's very Goodfellas esque, but it's got a nice pace. It's nice to see him play an actual character again rather than Mister Action Stuntman. You know, even though there's a bit of that in the character, it's more nuanced. A lot more upbeat than the real life events as well. Yes, that Barry true. Barry Seal's actual fate was horribly depressing. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. he was previously uh, played by Dennis Hopper, I believe, in a uh, made for TV adaptation that was a lot more faithful to real events and subsequently a lot more grim. So, yeah, yeah. But there you go, so Tom Cruise. If you want to meet him at the moment, and he won't come anywhere near you because a he's Tom Cruise and b COVID, but uh, he is in Yorkshire currently. <laughs> uh, another bit of news: Michael Keaton has been confirmed to play Batman in the upcoming Flash movie, entitled The Flash. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Uh, The actor who first played the character in Tim Burton's 1989 film, the same name, will be be returning to the role, rather, opposite Ezra Miller as the film's titular character. Doesn't that mean in terms of actors playing the role? I know he's he's lent himself to incarnations before, but doesn't that mean that he's going to be the oldest Batman? Because Michael Keaton is, I believe he's 69 or 70 now. Yeah, I mean, I I guess this is intentional. I mean, I really... There's no suggestion that they're going to be doing any de-aging tech or anything like that. No. I imagine this film is going to feature an aging Bruce Wayne. But uh, yeah, it'll be nice to see Keaton back in the role. I like how he's lampooned it over the years with the Birdman. And uh, was it, didn't he play the Vulture as well? Which is, you know, he's often referenced that whole superhero yeah, book yeah. career kind of thing. Nice to see him back in the role again. I'd quite happily watch a full Batman film with Michael Keaton as the aged Batman, you know? Yeah, I've, you know, I've seen, um, over the past week or so, I've seen people slating the uh, 89 and 92 uh, Batman films, and it's kind of provoked my ire a little bit, because I think, where is your sense of fun? Mm. Those two Batman films are meant to be fun. There's a definite comic book silliness to it. Tim yeah. Burton was really good at that back in the day. If you're going to make a Batman film, it has to be exactly like The Dark Knight. Well, no, you know, just take the stick out of your ass, man. Mm. <laughs> But yeah, this seems to be, uh, well, this is current, it's got a theatrical release this for November 4th, 2022. So this is very much in pre- little while off. pre-production, just going into production. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we'd like to see Keaton back in the chair again. And uh, that whole Robert Pattinson Batman thing, I haven't heard anything of that for quite some time, actually. Me neither. That seems to have gone entirely dark. Yeah. Because it, it started filming during the COVID restrictions and they had to shut down again. The rumors were that it was Robert Pattinson that got COVID. And so that all seems to have gone entirely quiet. And I was quite intrigued by the art style they were going with for that. So anything I pick up on that, obviously I'll throw into the podcast. But I was suddenly thinking earlier, it's sort of notable by its absence at the moment. You'd expect them to be throwing a bit more hype its way. It had a rage all over social media for a considerable amount of weeks. And yeah, I've I've seen absolutely fuck all. But a Keaton resurgence as Batman is very welcome. I'll be watching that. Yeah, absolutely. Another article here, this is from thefilmstage.com. Paul Thomas Anderson's next film has been set for a full 2021 release. Oh, okay. So following Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson safely embarked on the production of his next film during the pandemic last summer, going under the working title of Soggy Bottom. Soggy Bottom? Soggy Bottom, yes. Uh, Again, reading this is from the film stage. Uh, We've confirmed with United Artists releasing that the film, currently going by untitled Paul Thomas Anderson, is set for a wide release on December 25th, uh, 2021. So Christmas Day release, uh, following a limited debut on November 26th. Although not revealing the cast, synopsis, or title, UAR has confirmed that PTA is credited with directing and writing the film and producing alongside Sarah Murphy. Not even the Vegas synopsis. No, this is one of those <laughs> meta-marketing things where they're just hoping Paul Thomas Anderson's name will, will sell it alone. Although I think he's got a big enough reputation that that might actually be quite a shrewd marketing move. Up a little bit of high. Odd that it's, I mean, it's got the limited debut on November 26th, but odd that it's going for wide release on Christmas Day. I haven't seen that done for a big movie in a little while. No. And obviously the COVID stuff stopped it previously. I can't really think of a PTA film that I'd consider a dud, really. I mean, I know a lot of people have a hard time getting on with Magnolia because it is completely fucking mad, but I think it's a very strong film. And then obviously the likes of, as far as I'm concerned, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood are absolutely, you know, beyond reproach 
Phantom Fred is great. The Master's great. So, yeah, I look forward to Hard Eight as well. We both love Hard Eight. Yeah, really love you know, Hard Eight. That's an underrated gem. Absolutely, film. absolutely outstanding film. So, yeah, any anytime that, uh, there's a new PTA announcement, I've always, you know, my, my ears are pricked. So. Well, as this article points out, actually, I mean, that's full-on holiday season. A big release at the time is going to be competing with a lot. So, no one really knows what this is about. Or whether it's going to, yeah, whether it's got the concept to be able to compete with those movies, whether it's more art house, no one's got a clue. But other films coming out during the same week, uh, The Matrix Four, which oh, will, wow. uh, yeah, <laughs> which will obviously be huge. Uh, the King's Man again, third entry in the franchise. That's going to be a big film. Yeah, I thought the trailer for that looks all right, actually. But yeah, we shall see. Uh, Downton Abbey Two again. That's going to get a lot of perhaps not the same audience as Matrix Four or The King's Man, <laughs> but it's going to get a certain audience coming in. Sing to and uh, Denzel Washington's Journal for Jordan and Spider-Man No Way Home arrives the week before and also Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley is going to be uh, there's a limited release for that on December the 3rd yeah I've but been... the, the main release is also going to be the same week so there's going to be a hell of a lot to review I think um, in Nightmare Alley I think Bradley Cooper and um, Kate Blanchett in it I think mm. see that that has got a really intriguing premise I think it's like a shrink and a carnival hypnotist team up on like a sort of very noirish um, sort of like uh, deception plot, like mugging people out of their fortunes and stuff. I thought that sounded great, especially with Del Toro at the helm. Actually, that links back to the Paul Thomas Anderson project because uh, there is a previously reported cast list. I know I'm not sure if this is accurate or not yet, but the sources seem to be somewhat credible. And the cast apparently includes Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, Cooper Hoffman, uh, Bradley Cooper, as you mentioned, Benny Safdie, Nat Man, and Mary Elizabeth Ellis. Oh, wow. Benny Safdie. Wow. Yeah. And uh, there is also a reported release. And again, no one's sure if this is the actual synopsis, but there's been leaks that have mentioned something about it being uh, set in 1970s San Fernando Valley, uh, about a high school student and successful child actor and an old school producer slash director and a politician running for office. No one knows if any of that's true, but it does seem to be either... This is complete bollocks or the set's leaking like a sieve. <laughs> One of the two, anyway. And filming has started on the new Martin Scorsese film, Flower Moon. Because it's a flower moon, finally. Yes, or well, this, this article, interestingly, has got it as Flower Moon. This is from faroutmagazine.com. Uh, yeah, this has uh, got the ensemble cast of Robert De Niro, Tantu Cardinal, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jesse Plemons. Apparently Jesse Plemons is playing the lead in this one. Really? Yeah, apparently so. According to this article, Scorsese said in a statement, we are thrilled to finally start production on Killers of the Flower Moon in Oklahoma. To be able to tell the story on the land where these events took place is incredibly important and critical to allowing us to portray an accurate depiction of the time and people. So this is all um, Native American based, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's based on the um, it's the the Osage Indians who were... Um, I'm glad you pronounced that because I was debating whether to do Osage or Osage. Yeah. It's Osage, yeah? Yeah, the Osage... Um, no, no, sorry, not... In, well, there's context, the American Indian movement, don't mind, but uh, just for the sake of propriety, Native Americans, sure. sorry. Uh, yeah, they were, um, several of them in the 1920s, they were murdered by um, uh, an incredibly vicious and nasty sort of uh, robber baron, arch-capitalist, uh, I think the motherfucker's name was William something or other. But yeah, it was a really, really brutal real-life uh, murder case. And um, there's been much literature written about it. And uh, when I found out that Scorsese was making a film based upon that and also with that perspective cast, I was really psyched for it. So hopefully... Um, yeah, I got a little bit more on that here in the article, reading further ahead. Uh, DiCaprio was originally set for the lead role, but after various discussions decided that he was more suitable for the supporting role and that Plemons should take on the lead. Uh, it was a decision that led many production companies to conclude that the film would be less commercial in this guise. Fortunately, Apple Films took up the mantle along with the Oklahoma Film and Music Office and filming began yesterday. This article is today. So brand new and fresh and spanking. This Because there was a little bit of vague contention about that, wasn't there? Because uh, I think, what is it? Um, yeah, we covered it. That, uh, DiCaprio would seem to caused quite a lot of friction in pre-production. Yeah, he had, a, his character. he had a Barney with the screenwriter and stuff because he wanted to have a darker, more villainous role. Mm. And it's kind of remiss of me, but I can't think of any other project where Jesse Plemons has taken the lead in a feature-length yeah, adaptation. that pricked my ears you know, up I mean, he, well. had a very, he had a prominent role in I'm Thinking of Ending Things. He's been prominent in Judas and the Black Messiah. 
obviously the first the first time I came across him was as Meth Damon because I first came across him as Todd in Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. you know, and then sort of seen him in bits and pieces here and there. He was quite prominent in the I believe it was the second season of Fargo. Yeah, so he's done. I, I mean, I really like him. I think, but yeah, I've yet. He's to- a great actor, and his career seems to be on the rise. And you know, getting a, a starring lead role in the uh, latest Scorsese film, you don't get much bigger than that, do you? So I'm good for him. Yeah, I, I think he's absolutely earned it. I've seen some great performances out of him, and I'm very curious to see how this film turns out. Yeah, he's he's, he's got he's got a lot of chops on him. That guy. I, I um I hope he goes really far. Yeah, absolutely. Okie dokie. Then, well, that's enough news this week. Uh, Liam, as usual. Two reviews from you. Indeed. Uh, what have you got? What are we starting with? So first up, I've been looking forward to this one for a while because it, it promised to be completely and utterly mad and it very much is. This is uh, Nobody. Heard of Nobody? Yes, yeah, with uh, Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, yes. Yeah. So yeah, directed by uh, Ilya Naishala and written by Derek Kolstad, the creator of the John Wick franchise. Ah, okay. So, yeah, this introduces us to Hutch Mansell, as played by Bob Odenkirk. And Hutch is, as the title suggests, very much a nobody. He is your average workaday American dude living in the burbs with his wife, Becca, played by Connie Nielsen, and his two kids. He's got a teenage son and a daughter who's much younger. The little girl is essentially the only one who outwardly shows Hutch any real love or affection. Other than that, the home atmosphere is rather frosty. And the, uh, in the opening of the film, there's a great sequence where it shows Hutch in his daily routine from Monday to Friday. So it comes up with, you know, bang, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, showing him showering, following his exercise regimen, having instant coffee, going to work at his father-in-law's tedious uh, metal fabrication firm day in and day out. And it accelerates like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday with like a continuous in lieu of some tired and hackneyed exposition like, oh, this is Hutch and let's do 15... No duration, no voiceover, yeah. yeah. Let's do 15, 20 minutes of you getting to know this very, very boilerplate pedestrian character that will just needlessly take up screen time. So it dispenses with that in quite a snappy fashion that I endured. Well... One night, during another unremarkable day, um, Hutch and his family have gone to bed for the evening and he hears a noise downstairs and he goes down and he discovers that two masked intruders are in the process of robbing his house. So he retrieves a golf club and his son wakes up, comes downstairs, tackles one of the robbers. Hutch is about to yield back with the golf club and do some damage, but then he just says to his son, you know, get off him, let him go inexplicably, which uh, causes not only his immediate family, but also his surrounding peers to show even less respect and less warmth to him. And then, as as a viewer, you're thinking like, as is mentioned in the film, you think he had the drop on these guys and he just mysteriously let them go away unscathed, even though they'd broken into his home and were putting his family at risk. What's the reason for this? Well... <laughs> As is gradually revealed upon visits to his father, Hutch's dad, uh, David, by the way, is played by the um, the great Christopher Lloyd. It's nice. Oh, really? Not, yeah, Christopher Lloyd in nursing home glory. He's Hutch's retiree dad in his 80s who just spends his days in his nursing home. No one does a cranky old coot quite like Christopher Oh, a- a- <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And he and he is playing, even though he, he occupies the film ultimately... Um, for a, a, a I'd say, yeah, it's fair to say a brief uh, duration. He does bring that to the plate, you know, his much beloved uh, idiosyncrasies and and timing. Like Christopher Lloyd is very much on his game there, and he visits his dad and he obtains an FBI badge and a revolver and goes hunting for these two miscreants who broke into his house and he finds them. And then he discovers that they were actually attempting, they were robbing his house in an attempt to pay for medical treatment for their sick infant. So he's actually, he's immediately ashamed with himself and he's like, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. Gets in a bus home, but he's very, he's still very, very frustrated because he was looking to retaliate against these people. But once he, once he becomes privy to why they were doing what they did, he just feels nothing but incredible empathy for them and he feels shame for his what were about to be his violent actions. So he gets on a bus going home, 
bunch of drunken, obnoxious Russian dickheads get on the bus, harass the people on board. They surround a lone girl who's sitting by herself just trying to mind her own business. And Hutch just silently goes to the front. He beckons the lady to get off the bus. He closes the doors and he turns around to the gangsters. Or these, you know, these Russian goons are on the bus and they say, what the fuck do you want? And he empties his revolver and he just goes, I'm going to fuck you up. And they all start laughing at him. But Hutch does indeed, with predominantly his bare hands, proceed to really seriously fuck them up. Because he isn't just a nobody. As we learn, Hutch used to be an auditor, quote unquote, for an extremely lethal black ops unit. And he is essentially your garden variety John Wick, Anton Chigurh type. He is a really bad, lethal, dangerous motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And that, what, that one of the things that's brilliant about this is that Bob Odenkirk, again, mentioning that I first became familiar with Jesse Plemons in Breaking Bad, I first became familiar with Bob Odenkirk in Breaking Bad. Sure, as yeah. Goodman. I've yet to see Better Call Saul, much to my... Shame. It's, it's excellent. I've heard nothing mm. except that. I've heard nothing but this absolutely excellent. But obviously, he, he was obviously the focal character in Better Call Saul, and he's very good in that. And, and then uh, I think probably more on uh, the other side of the pond, he's also known for stuff like Mr. Show, uh, the comedy program and stuff. You know, so yeah, he's, he's, he's sort a, of a Saturday Night Live alumni. And for, that, as much as I understand, he's a comedy yeah. face. Yeah, he is. And not, he's, not particularly big in the UK, but in the US comedy yeah. circuit, he's, and he's an and old he, face. Yeah. He is a very funny guy. I think he has great delivery, he has great timing. He's a really, really funny guy. So just the sheer suggestion of having Bob Odenkirk as a John Wick-esque, virtually indestructible badass is absolutely ludicrous, fucking, you know, laughing gas material. And the film knows that, and it completely and utterly runs with that in spades. Essentially, to cut a long story short and to evade spoilers, the people that he mullers on the bus turn out to be connected to uh, extremely powerful and extremely nasty Russian organised crime. So and this is so, John Wick? <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it's, jo it's John Wick... But even so, no one kills his it's, dog. It's John, it's, no, but it's John Wick taking itself even less seriously, you know, than any of the John Wicks. It's just because the initial fight, that catalytic fight on the bus, even though it is ludicrous, there's something about it that is choreographed in a you know a satisfying sort of bone crunching brute force capacity. It's it's a very it's a good looking and very entertaining you know bit of bash up. But as the film progresses. The action, the violence, it just proliferates into it just to, absurdity is a galactic understatement. It is absolutely fucking ridiculous. But it knows this every step of the way. So you just got Hutch just in mountingly extreme conflicts with these Russian mafiosi trying to hunt him down and trying to, you know, approach. Uh, old contacts to get help and sort of showing how he actually kits out his otherwise unremarkable house with high-tech bunkers and hidden arsenals. And it's just, it, it is just a bit of fun. Is this film, there's, this film does one thing and that's, it does exactly what it says on the tin. It, it promises to be a completely ridiculous satirical send up of not only the John Wick franchise, but also the sort of maudlin action thrillers that people like, especially Liam Neeson, he's a big culprit in these kind of things as of late. These films that are completely removed from any kind of verisimilitude whatsoever, but they don't seem to have a sense of humour about it. Yes, yeah, even, even I mean, even Die Hard, which, yeah, you know, Die Hard is a popcorn film, but I would, I would argue uh, in Die Hard's favour against it being completely and utterly mindless, idiotic fun. I think that it uh, it has, it deserves to be taken a bit more seriously than that. Yes, it's an action thriller, but it also has good character development and pacing, et cetera, et cetera. Liam Neeson's films, you know, but it, but it ha the thing was, sorry, the thing with Dodd is that it has, a, it still has a twinkle in its eye. None of ne none of Neeson's films have that whatsoever. No, I, I mentioned last week when I reviewed uh, Honest Thief on the premium. And it tries to put jokes in, but they're so massively unfunny Hackney, yeah. and really forced. In that, they're suddenly it's like they realise that. Hang on a minute, there's no levity in here. We need to put some levity in. There needs to be a gag every now and then, which I absolutely agree with, as we've discussed many times. All films should have some levity in them somewhere because life has got you know inevitable humour in it. But you're, I think you're absolutely right with the. 
the Liam Neeson stuff is so po-faced. Even when they try and make a joke, it doesn't work. Yeah. So the jokes in this, are there, are there jokes? Are there like... Well, no, it, the, the thing is, the thing with Nobody is that it predominantly plays it straight up until um, a completely but satisfyingly demented finale with uh, fucking, um, well, with Od- it involves Odin Kirk, Christopher Lloyd, and what's the name of that rapper? How do you pronounce it? Is it Reza? Or Z A? Does he call himself? Oh, I have Reza? no idea how to pronounce that. Yeah, I know who you but mean. He's, he's a focal character. R Z A. Yeah, yeah. R Z A. I think. Uh, no disrespect. I just don't really know the man. We're getting old, but, uh, man. We're out, yeah. we're out of touch. No, I think. I think he's been around for quite a while, actually. <laughs> but um, there's there are no real what you would call gags per se, but the proliferation of the complete and utter idiocy in terms of the unrealistic action sequences, plus Bob Odenkirk playing the role straight, but because it's Bob Odenkirk, I think anyone who is completely unfamiliar with Bob, Bob Odenkirk hitherto viewing nobody, they I think they will even get a sense that this guy is incredibly unlike what I would expect out of any action yeah. star whatsoever. You know, I mean, he's kind of, he's not a tiny guy, but he's kind of on the smaller side. He's got very... He's not the kind of, he doesn't really look like the kind of guy you would cast as an action star. He's an earnest, the everyman. He's a, you know. It's essentially, yeah. Is there but, a bit of, there sounds like there's some similarities here to um, Falling Down. Um, well, that's the thing. Falling Down has, at least for the majority of the film before it goes completely apeshit, I think Falling Down has a lot of subtext and gravitas and a real fire right. burning inside of it. Whereas, Nobody is just, it is complete turn your brain off, balls to the wall. You think he's you think he's just a dork who works as a fucking accountant at a metal fabrication company, but no, he is like one of, one of the most lethal possible assassins you could ever hope to come across. And it's just about him trying to preserve his suburban heaven upon leaving that past, ensuring that his loved ones don't get hurt, which he has to engage in progressively insane and utterly insurvivable combat to do. But it, yeah, it's there's not the only thing you can really say about nobody is that does it deliver what it promises to deliver as a, a completely silly B movie, uh, like a willfully dumb uh, B movie popcorn fest? Yes, absolutely. And the fact that Bob Odenkirk is at the helm for someone who has, knowing Bob Odenkirk initially as Saul, that made that for me even funnier. Even though he's not, he doesn't outwardly try um, and deliver, there is, there's no real comic dialogue in this with regards to Odenkirk, but the fact that it was just him made it very amusing to me. And I think they're playing up to that. As I said, people who have no idea who he is, I still, I, I, I imagine they'll get some sense that yeah, because he is so completely and utterly unlike your Bruce Willis's, even your Keanu Reeves's. You know, he's just like, he's, he's, he doesn't seem cut from that cloth remotely, but the film runs with it. And you end up as completely ridiculous and baseline and not very imaginative as it is, politely. You still end up rooting for Hutch because he's something of a good guy and the villains are completely ridiculous caricatural villains. Like they are very, very Russian gangster. Mm-hmm. You know, and it is completely and utterly absurd. Uh, yeah, it's very fun. It's just very fun. It's worth, I think it's, I might check that out. Yeah, it's worth tuning into. It's, it, I've watched so many bad action B-movies for this, for the purposes of reviewing them. Yeah. It'd be nice to see like a, a bad one done well. You know yeah, what I mean? That's like, the thing. It's at, been a while. At no, at no point in Nobody does it hint does it really hint that this film is going to go any way other than good guy kicks bad guys asses but it does it does that in a satisfying way and and it does and it never does get bogged down in any you know it doesn't become sort of self-righteous or maudlin at any at any point it's it's kind of it's serio comic with an emphasis on the with an underplayed emphasis on the comic most of the actual Explicit humour, I would say, actually comes from Christopher Lloyd as Hutch's mad dad, who is also a, like a motherfucker with a firearm as well. So yeah, it's good. It's a good laugh. It's Excellent. something. Stick it, stick it on with your missus. You'll probably have a great time. So, cool. Yeah, yeah, looking forward. Yeah, to it. it's all right. And then uh, next up, uh, we've got. Uh, I think I'll probably call this the surprise of the week. Actually, uh, this is the comeback trail. 
This is uh, directed by George Gallo, and it's actually a remake of a movie from 1982 that I'd never actually heard of. But uh, this stars Robert De Niro as Max Barber. Max Barber, along with his partner, Walter Creason, played by Zach Braff, owns Miracle Motion Pictures. This is set in 1974 in Hollywood, and their company, Miracle Motion Pictures, they specialize in grindhouse B-movie crud. In fact, their latest film to date is a movie called Killer Nuns. Right. And, uh, because there's a whole, because, I want to see it already. Yeah, because because <laughs> essentially the um the, the thing with uh, De Niro's character Max Barber is that he is something of a deluded narcissist who uh, he believes himself to be a producer of movies, a noteworthy producer of movies, you know, films to be taken seriously. And several characters say to him like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your last picture was about a bunch of nuns going around shooting and slicing up wise guys. You know, it's not, it's a, you know, you're not exactly making the creme de la creme of fucking cerebral cinema here, are you? But Max Barber, yeah, failing business. He is, um, I think, about 300 grand or something in the red to uh, Reggie Fontaine, who is a completely deranged cinephile mob boss played by Morgan Freeman. And uh, Morgan Freeman relentlessly threatens Max, saying, like, if you don't pay me my money, I'm going to kill you in X way, like such and such did in X film, which is an aspect I find, I found quite funny. You know, he keeps going, like, you get you get me back my money, otherwise I'm going to throttle you like Tony Curtis did in Bastard Strangler. I'm going to chuck you down them stairs like Richard Widmark and Kiss of Death, delivered by Morgan Freeman. It sounds a lot funnier. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... So, so Max and Walter are at an extremely low ebb. They've, they're, they're hemorrhaging money. Max owes loads of money to Reggie Fontaine. James Moore, played by Emile Hirsch, is uh, a rival producer who is far, far, far more quids in and has a lot more clout to wield. And he ends up offering uh, Max over a million dollars for his prize script that he, that he keeps in his possession, relentlessly wanting someone to film it. And uh, Max, re- he reluctantly lets it go because he's clinging on to his dream of being seen as a successful and a serious producer of films with gravitas to be taken, you know, to, to commands respect. But even though he's a, he's a complete hack who doesn't have any talent and he produces complete and utter shit. So he sells the film to James Moore, but uh, then <laughs> the lead... The, the rising Hollywood star that they cast for the project is inadvertently killed by Max. <laughs> and Reggie still wants his money. So in order to smooth everything over, Max comes up with a plan, the plan to end all plans in order to make himself and his partner rich, to pay off uh, Reggie and the goons getting on his back and to, uh, you know just kind of maybe spend the next few years taking it easy for a serious payout. And this is how he plans to do this. Duke Montana, who is an aging Western star played by Tommy Lee Jones, is sitting in his trailer one day with his gun in his mouth wanting to commit suicide when Max and Walter approach him and say that they want to cast him in a picture. They want to film a script that's been sitting on there unused for ages now called uh, The Oldest Gun in the West. And they are desperate to have Duke on board because they think that it will prove to be his comeback and it will take him from being a has-been right back into the limelight. It'll be a great, you know, it'll be uh, the Duke, Duke Montana's fucking, uh, you know, uh, McConaissance or whatever fucking other, you know, silly neologism you want to use. Sure, you know, He's, yeah. he's going to come, like, f- firing back into the fold. And uh, they eventually convince Duke to do this, even though the man is incredibly suicidal and cantankerous and drunk in the way that only Tommy Lee Jones can play. <laughs> made for the role. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, then they manage to assemble a director. I can't, you know, they get the whole shebang going. <clears throat> but what Max is actually planning to do is kill Duke during one of the days of shooting. And he, attempt- he attempts to do this through uh, things like uh, making a bridge that he has to utilize in one scene uh, lethal to cross over uh, by hiring a stunt horse that goes completely and utterly apeshit with certain word commands and will easily <laughs> kill anyone who is anywhere near it, let alone on top of it. 
Uh, he just he, he attempts various ways to kill Duke so they can cash in on the life insurance policy that they've taken out on him. And I can't really give away much more than that because otherwise I'd just be spoiling things. I'd say this sounds really, really funny on paper. Now, he, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I was very surprised. With the exception of a couple of moments of sentimentalism that didn't work for me and a couple of physical gags that didn't work for me, I thought the comeback trail was actually really funny. Excellent. I thought it was really good. De Niro, this is probably the most self-respect De Niro has had in years. Seriously, I've, I was watching this thinking like, you know, he's been doing all the fucking war with grandpa, dirty grandpa, all the fuckers from all this shit. And he's playing, you know, he's playing an irritating, ultra-talkative, low-life hustler, but he's not, He's not demeaning himself with all these shitty scatological... Well, it's a bit redundant to say shitty scatological gags, but all these things that play to crass, gross-out, lowest common denominator toilet humour. I'm not lambasting that sort of thing because I'm some sort of prude. I'm lambasting it is because it, you can get it right, that kind of thing, and it can be very funny. The instances where De Niro has been at the helm, it hasn't been funny. No. It's been fucking appalling and just unfunny and... Just very bland and just completely not successful, not nuanced, not fucking amusing in the slightest. De Niro, you know, he actually has some game here as Max Barber. And he's got really, really good chemistry with uh, Zach Braff. I thought that Morgan Freeman's maniacal, like, sort of uh, quote whoring from certain films with this insane bug-eyed frothing at the mouth, I, I thought that worked well. I found it funny because you know, it's, it's Morgan Freeman you know, utilising the fact that he is now of an old man and he's like, well, if, I, you know, if I'm going to be an old man, I want to be a crazy old man. People are kind of used to my mellifluous tones and taking me very seriously in the likes of Seven and Shawshank. So I just want to have a little bit of a laugh. And uh, I think that Morgan Freeman actually does that successfully. I, I, I like him in this a lot more than I... I never cared for stuff like... Well, what the fuck was it? I can only think of a few comedies with... Freeman in them was it Bruce Almighty? I think he was God. Yeah, the yeah. carry. I, I just wasn't really a big fan of that because he's still like Morgan Freeman playing a madman is 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 very satisfying. But I I truly think that the linchpin humour in this film definitely is Tommy Lee Jones because it's Tommy Lee Jones playing a cranky, washed up, bitter, suicidal, unhinged, faded cowboy movie star. Yeah, I'm sold. Immediately sold. <laughs> and everything you would expect Tommy Lee Jones to do with that role, he does it. <laughs> so the comeback, yeah, it's, I mean, yes, it's, I suppose you could call it a distraction film. It's, I, I mean, I, I personally wouldn't put it on any end of year list, but I was expecting very, very little from this. And I'm sorry, yeah, I, I, I did go in with biases. I was expecting to be disappointed, but I wasn't. As I said, the ending... Is a bit saccharine, and I could have done without that. There's a cup, literally a couple of physical gags that I could have done without. Other than that, uh, the dialogue is actually sharp. There is good chemistry in it. There's loads of moments in it that made me laugh, and ultimately, I actually thought that it was a really nice little comedy that was, yeah, it was predominantly a, a smart film that had some heart to it, and uh, yeah, it has character-driven humour. And De Niro is um, <laughs> the best he's been in quite some time. Everything about that has totally sold me. I'm, I, I'm really looking forward to it. Honestly, I, I was surprised as hell. I thought it was I thought I was gonna hate it. I thought this is gonna be fucking appalling, but it's not. It really isn't. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, cool yeah stick it on, man. Okay then. Well that brings me on to TV of the week. It's back. <laughs> Any documentaries? I've got one little docuseries <laughs> at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I cancelled TV of the week last week. I did Godzilla vs. Kong instead mm. um, because I was catching up with something. And uh, this is thus. Oh, yes. I remember. Yeah, I've been thinking about this, actually. Yeah. Teasing at this. So uh, I've got a rule on the podcast. I try, you know, I try and watch the whole series through before I review anything. But at the absolute minimum, I have to get beyond halfway. And uh, this has two seasons out. One season is out currently and has 13 episodes released. And the season before has got 20 episodes in total all about 45 minutes to an hour long episodes. Mm. Uh, and it's called Prodigal Son. Okay. And this is available on the Fox Network in the US and on the Sky Network in the UK. I believe it's part of the Sky Box set thing if you're a UK listener. 
Um, set up on this. Uh, we initially meet Tom Payne playing uh, Malcolm Bright, who's working for the FBI, and they, him and his team are about to assault a cabin in the woods. And it becomes clear that he is he's, he's sort of this mysterious cabin with obviously a nefarious person inside. The team are all getting ready to infiltrate. And he's there and he's listening to the cicadas outside. Mm. He goes, this must make the, uh, the killer feel really comfortable. So it becomes very obvious that he is a FBI um, serial killer expert. And we get some interspersed flashbacks of Malcolm Bright's past. We get shots of his father, uh, Martin Whitley, played by Michael Sheen, sitting like, down on his knees in front of the young Malcolm Bright, telling him that everything's going to be okay. Don't worry, you're my boy. Remember that beyond all else, you're my son. So it's revealed that when uh, Malcolm Bright was a child, his father was arrested. And the reason his father was arrested is because he was a serial killer, nicknamed the surgeon. So nice. he was a doctor, yeah, had a double life, essentially. He was a doctor day by day, an incredibly successful heart surgeon living in New York. Uh, his wife, Jessica Whitley, played by Bellamy Young, Malcolm's mother, um, comes from a very, very rich and successful family and the perfect life in New York. But it's revealed through flashback that he was arrested and Malcolm at a very young age was left fatherless. We then cut to Malcolm after the events of taking over the cabin. It's never actually shown the, uh, the, the cabin assault itself. But he is uh, dismissed by the FBI. And the reason that they've dismissed him is because they're worried that his link to his serial killer father and the fact that he's a bit weird and floaty and out there means that he's going too deep into the minds of these killers and they're a bit worried that he might be a sociopath slash psychopath himself. So he's let go from the FBI. He travels back home to New York to be back with his family and he is intercepted by Gil, played by Lou Diamond Phillips. I love that name. Lou Diamond Lou Phillips. Lou Diamond Phillips. Holy yes. shit. <laughs> Gil is a lieutenant with the major crimes unit of the NYPD. And it is also revealed fairly early on that he was the police officer that discovered that Malcolm's father was a serial killer. With the help of the 10-year-old's Malcolm himself, discovered that he was a serial killer, put him away, and has therefore become a bit of a mentor and a father figure. And he has a job for Malcolm. He now wants him to work with him and his team to be a profiler for the NYPD as they investigate serial killers. Mm. His father is locked up at the Claremont Psychiatric Facility. And it is also revealed through flashback that for a long time when Malcolm was coming up and studying to become a profiler and to become an expert in serial killers, of course he used his father as a reference. So they used to meet regularly and have a discussion about cases that he was working on, psychological theories, all that sort of thing. But they have since become estranged as Malcolm realized more and more that his association with his father, meeting him regularly, wasn't good for his mental health. Unfortunately for Malcolm, in the first episode, his first case with the NYPD is a copycat killer, and the copycat killer is copycatting his father. So inevitably, he has to go back to his father to discuss the methods that he used in his killings. 23 people the surgeon murdered, and potentially more as well, as is revealed as the series goes on and re-establish that link. So fairly easy setup. What this eventually moves into is kind of a police procedural in very much the tradition of CSI New York, Special Victims Unit, you know all those sort of late night shows. So at least in the UK, they're on late at night. Like Law and Order. I just watch Special donk. Victims Unit because fucking Ice-T is in it and I find that hilarious. Right, but you know the setup where it's <laughs> yeah, like, so yeah, you, yeah. you know the cops, you know the uh, forensics analysis team sure, and yeah. each week there's a different killer or a different person that's done a horrible act and they have to find who this person is, find their associations, track the killer down and bring them to justice. It's one of those, really. Except the difference with this, it's like one of those it's just every individual piece is just a little bit better. So you've very much got that, you know, murderer of the week kind of thing. And as the series evolves, you get more and more overarching murders. One of the nice plot threads is that Malcolm begins to realize that he's got repressed memories. That when he was a kid, there's actually a missing passage of time where he doesn't know what happened. And this troubles him deeply. He's quite a quirky character. He's got, uh, he suffers from night terrors. He has to chain himself to his bed every night with a mouth shield because otherwise he is completely and utterly uncontrollable. He's got a constant hand tremor. 
And despite the fact that he's extremely good at his job, he worries that a lot of that is coming from the fact that essentially, although he's studied killers and he's studied psychopaths, is his connection, why is it the reason why he's so good at his job because of the DNA of his father? That's his big worry. So he's very conflicted about that constantly. So nice little character quirks and things going on in the background there. But what you essentially have is murderer of the week as this goes on and on. And there's a lot of it. So in order to get an accurate picture of this show, you've got that element. Imagine that crossed with a bit of house and with a bit of silence of the lambs as well. Okay, you're really piquing my curiosity. Yeah, so Michael Sheen as Martin Whitley, um, he's essentially got a very cushy cell where he's kept. He's got like bookcases full of medical textbooks. Um, He's kept tethered to the back wall of the cell by like a cable. And there's a red line drawn on the floor, which is the reach of the tether. So everybody that comes into the room can't go any further than the red line. But the reason he's been given this cushy treatment is it's given more depth later in the show, but initially there's a hand wave thing of... He's uh, consulting for Saudi businessmen. And they've ensured that he's got a cushy life inside this psychiatric facility because he's an extremely intelligent man and he's very useful. Let me tell you, Michael Sheen plays this role beautifully. It would be very, very easy to do uh, Anthony Hopkins' Silence of the Lambs thing. What he's actually doing is it's more Dr. House than it is Hannibal Lecter. I was just going to ask you, you know, is he more comparable to Hopkins Lecter or Cox Lecter? No, he's more comparable to House, except he's chained to a wall. There's sort of a wide-eyed delight and a wry sense of humour, which he plays beautifully well, and occasional bursts of extreme rage and power and dangerousness. One of the things this show does, which I really, really like, is that it flits around between being very, very dark and at points quite scary, because Malcolm is constantly, uh, his, his life is constantly interrupted by these visions and hallucinations. Bits of his past come through at really inopportune moments. He's regarded by everyone around him as a brilliant person, a bit of a savant, but incredibly weird, very, very troubled. And no one's quite sure whether he's sane or not. And he's not sure whether he's sane or not as well. And Tom Payne does a magnificent job of that. Michael Sheen doing a Hannibal Lecter slash Dr. House thing in the background. Obviously, he becomes more and more useful as the series goes on. You've got the missing time dynamic as well. So there's this constant overarching thing that he's constantly trying to piece together. Why have I blocked out? I can remember most of the things about my father. Why have I blocked out this particular bit? Why is that bit sticking in my mind so much, which becomes like an overarching thread for the series? Um, his team as well. So you've got Lou Diamond Phillips as Gil, essentially his boss. You've got uh, Frank Hartz as uh, JT Tarmel, who's very much like your traditional CSI law and order cop. Mm. He thinks this guy's complete and utter weirdo, but it gradually grows to like him. Uh, you've got Aurora Perigneux as uh, Danny Powell as well, who's a female detective who actually starts to see the troubled nature underneath him and starts to sort of probe deeper and actually becomes like a genuine friend to him. So there's a lot of arcs and things going on here. It's very dark at moments. It's also very funny at moments as well. The humor is actually kind of dead on. It made me laugh out loud a lot more than I was expecting to. It's also quite silly. And it gradually gets sillier and sillier as the show, you can almost feel the show getting more confident with the fact that, okay, so we've done the dark themes and they've been successful. But there's moments of sheer, it's not a very believable program in the same way that the Law and Order stuff is. Yeah, yeah. It's very much pop psychology, you know, and sort of, oh, this guy is a, uh, this guy's a thrill-seeking narcissist and all this kind of stuff. It's pretty much, I can see anybody with an actual psychology degree watching it and rolling their eyes, you know? <laughs> and there's more and more insanely silly setups as well. There's one moment in particular where there's a, a, they find a guy who's um, suspended by wires and um, his team, are, the team start cutting the wires around him and there are these swords on like levers. That So if the guy moves and moves one of the wires, these swords fall from levers from the ceiling. So Malcolm Bright gets in amongst, like next to this guy, gets his team to cut the wires and he's asking him questions about like what he knows, why the murderer would string him up like this while catching the swords on levers as they fall from the ceiling. <laughs> but the show, the show does know that it's being silly. And the fact that it's being silly doesn't detract away from the weight and depth of the drama when it needs to get weighty. Mm. I think it's actually very, very accomplished in that regard. I said last week that I wasn't ready for, to review it yet, not just because I haven't watched enough of it, but also because I hadn't quite made up my mind on it. I was where I stood on it. What I've found now, I'm at the end of season one, so I've done those 20 episodes, there's 13 of the new season at the moment, which I'm about to start. What I've found is that it's extremely bingeable. 
there's something almost comforting about that mystery of the week kind of thing, but done to a higher level than this sort of thing is normally done. It's not the sort of what I would call soap opera trash that Law and Order SVU and all those. I, I kind of, they're fine to watch, but I, I can't ever get myself engaged with them. And they've got a huge fan base oh, around the world. It's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. This is ridiculous too, but everything about it, the writing, the performances, the uh, subtle shifts in tone between being dark and gory and funny, et cetera, it gets all of that so much better. You know how chefs sometimes say, oh, what I've done here is I've tried to elevate beans on toast. This is what this show's done. <laughs> the beans on toast is Law and Order, SVU, CSI, Miami, New York. And they've elevated it up to being like a, a gourmet meal yeah. almost. So I'm really, really pleased with it as a show. Actually, people often ask me, what's the, what's the best thing to binge? Then you go, the next question you ask them is, well, what have you watched so far? And they list all of the big bingeable series. They list The Sopranos, they list The Wire, they list Deadwood, they list Game of Thrones, they list, you know, you, know. Did you, you want, what they're looking for is something with a lot of episodes that's got a lot of mileage and it's going to do something a bit different every week, but also in the, it's sort of in a weird way comforting. We can sit there for an evening and watch four or five episodes of it and feel satisfied out of the end. Yeah, of it. yeah. And this show is that. I'm really, really impressed with it. Actually, it's taken what is a tired, saggy facet of the art form of serial television, and it's lifted it just enough that it feels fresh and bright, and it's very, very tense and thrilling at points as well. You know, when I reviewed um, the Irregulars the other week, yeah, I used the word tosh. Yes. And I use it in the pejorative sense. It's just tosh. It's, it's flim flam. It's, there's nothing. This is tosh, but it's really good tosh. <laughs> it, it's flipper and yeah, you'll find yourself laughing at it. You'll find yourself going, oh, okay, so I see where this is going. It's obviously her that did the murder or whatever, or it's the, the weird kid that stands out in the back garden in every shot. You know, just, some of them really aren't hard to see coming. You sort of roll your eyes a little bit. But there's always a little bit of a twist in it. There's always a little bit of an elevation of the story and the acting. It's just a little bit better than you expect it to be. And as a result, I think it's a really, really enjoyable show. I like it a lot. So that's actually, I, you know what, it hasn't got much hype in this country anyway. I've seen virtually no hype for Prodigal Son. And I'm a bit worried because Fox has got a, um, a, a there's a sort of a pattern to them where when they get a show that's doing quite well, but it hasn't quite got its fan base yet, they have a tendency to kill it in its crib. The fact that it's got a second season is very, very good. I've got my fingers crossed for it. That they're not going to kill it in its crib because I think it's got legs. And I think it's actually really surprisingly well done. So that's my pick of the week. And Prodigal Son. Sounds very, very, very fun, man. I mean, I've got to say, because speaking about SVU, the last full-length episode I watched of SVU was about incels. Right, yeah. A, uh, a, 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 hor a horrendous, like, sort of sexual assault murder mystery centered around the Reddit subculture of incels. And I just remember sitting there, sitting there laughing my ass off and thinking, Jesus Christ, can you not afford better script writers sure. with more imagination than this fucking shit? Sounds that at least Prodigal Son has something to that effect. Prodigal Son actually has it. Yeah they've, yeah, they've actually taken that shite and they've raised it up to being really good again. And I'm, I'm really pleased with this. Surprisingly well written and very well acted as well. It's, it's good all round. I've been enjoying it a lot. Yeah, sounds promising. And yeah, as you uh, as you alluded to at the start, I often stick a docu-series on at the end. And this uh, came out a couple of weeks ago on Netflix and caused quite a bit of hype at the time, although it's faded down quite quickly, as Netflix docu-series often do. It's a mini-series, four episodes, and it's called This Is A Robbery. Oh, I haven't heard of this one. Which reminds me very much of the Monty Python, bring me a shrubbery. <laughs> this is our robbery. The knights who say, neat. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, to give it its full title, this is a robbery, the world's biggest art heist. And this is about an event that happened in uh, 1990, uh, March 18th, 1990, uh, in Boston. So you immediately get a lot of accents to have fun with because I love the Boston accent. Get some chowder, you know. Get in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was the robbery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. It has a huge, huge collection of paintings in particular worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And in the 90s, they, uh, their security team essentially was two guys overnight, uh, one of which was uh, quite a long-haired stoner dude who played in a lot of bands, smoked a lot of pot. And the fact that he was entrusted with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art is quite incredible. <laughs> uh, would you believe it? Uh, two police officers turned up one evening and buzzed themselves in. This uh, long-haired stoner let them in they asked him to come to the other side of the desk because they, I think there was some sort of flim flam about him having an outstanding warrant or something. He came to the other side of the desk. 
They cuffed him, they took him downstairs, they tied his head up with duct tape, and they said, this is a robbery. And they walked off with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art. And it's no reveal, really, because it's in the first episode. This hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art, including like Rembrandt's and Manet and stuff like that, like real high value art, well. uh, is missing to this day. Is the the world no apprehended perpetrators? No, is is wow. literally the world's biggest art heist in terms of value. It's utterly unbelievable. They left it in charge of like two security guards that absolutely had no idea what they were doing. But hey, it was the nineties, right? Everyone was on coke, and uh, <laughs> they. It's interesting how this spins out as well. So only four episodes of it. But the assumption, and the FBI have ongoing theories with this, is that there was a time with the mob, either the Irish mob or the Italian mob, because what the mob had learnt at this time was that if you employed art thieves, and there is actually a really notorious art thief interviewed in this program, which I thought was very, very cool. And he's out as well, which is even cooler. You think, <laughs> how are you walking around after what you did? He's there going, yeah, I did this, I did that. But anyway... The thing with the mob at the time was they learned that if you went and robbed a load of really high value art, you couldn't really fence it because the you know, the people willing to buy knockoff goods, even if it's a Rembrandt, you know, they're spending, okay, so it's worth 50 million. But if I pay that 50 million, I can't hang it and display it anywhere because it's obviously a stolen piece of art. It's too much heat. But what it is useful for is collateral because if one of you gets hauled in and you know the RICO Act or whatever and the jig is up, you can use it, and many mobsters have, to negotiate your freedom by going, okay, well, how about if I tell you the location that I may or may not know of a missing Rembrandt? What would that get me off my sentence? So the mob decides to get this idea that it's actually like being arrested collateral that you could have in the background that you could use against the police. As I said, no big reveal or anything, and it's, the show makes it very, very clear from the first episode, this art has never been found, although there's plenty and plenty of theories as to what happened to it and who did what and when. And unfortunately, it's been long enough now where they believe that the crew that took it, most of them are dead. There is only one guy left out of the crew that they believe did this heist that is still walking. And actually, he's released during the making of the documentary and is yet to talk. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those ones where... Uh, is, he, is he Irish-American? Uh, I wouldn't. I don't think so. No, no. I think he's more, more Italian-American. Oh, okay. But... The problem with it is, and it's just the you know, one of those facts of life kind of things. It's a bit like unsolved mysteries or anything like that. One of the nice things with the docuseries is when you get to a satisfying conclusion at the end, and this doesn't have one. But it's got enough speculation going on there that it's a very, very entertaining ride. It's got a very uh, like a cast of colorful characters that are very, very enjoyable. There's a lot of sort of head-scratching moments where you go, I can't believe they actually did that. And there's... Uh, <laughs> Some of these old mobster guys that they bring into it as well are just straight out of central casting, which is really, really funny. So, I mean, this guy could fuck up a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really is that kind of stuff. You know, you got the Irish mob involved as well. It's, you know, I review a lot of these docuseries and I try and find the special ones. Like I think Night Stalker, for example, is a special one. I wouldn't say this is a particularly special one, but if you're a fan of docuseries like I am, it's, it's a good, entertaining ride. It's Saturday night with a takeaway looking for something to watch. You know, I'm not going to go too mad about it because, but it, it's, it's perfectly fine. That's kind of what I want to say. I know it's a bit of a wishy-washy thing to say in a review, but it's, it, you know, it's a good docu-series. I just don't really have anything particularly special to say about it. I'm reviewing it on this podcast because someone asked me to. They just told me to check it out. And I thought it was good. I genuinely thought it was good, but nothing, there's nothing mind-blowing here, but it's a good, um, it's, it's a good four hours of intrigue anyway I'll, I'll leave it at that yeah. did you remember that one because I think I did it on here did you ever check out that one I mentioned uh, there are no fakes do you remember that no I've been meaning to because that's uh, if you want a documentary about uh, it's more to do with art forgery than yes art fair, I remember your review of it that was one that I mean I at least hope some of our viewers have checked out because that's a documentary about art related crime that goes in directions you cannot fucking predict at all yeah, by the sounds of your review of it, that's probably a little bit more entertaining than this one. But it, it's, it's fucking dark. It's perfectly sure. decent. This is a shrubbery. Sorry, this is a rubbery. And, um, <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. Well, that was a nice link in actually to my trivia this week because um, I've done art heists. Cool. Art heist trivia. Would you believe it? There's quite a lot of it. Art heist. So, are, so, something so elegant about art heist. I know. In the pop culture sort of uh, psychosphere. There's something romantic about it, yeah. I think. There's something, you, you almost, it's one of those ones where you sort of almost root for the uh, the villains. 
Yeah, because I mean, like just one of, quick score, man. I think everyone's considered that at some point in their life. Yeah, they? and, and if I can just get away with one painting. It, when you visualize art heist, you don't really, you know, you imagine people sneaking in undercover and all. You don't think of tellers having shotguns put in their face. It seems more like a more gentleman cat burglar. Yeah, kind some, of thing, yeah, yeah, something like a pe- a peaceable sort of burglar would do, as opposed to a sadistic hood. Yeah. So yeah, I've got some good stories here actually because it's surprisingly common art theft. <laughs> Historians believe that the very first art theft was carried out by pirates in 1473. Polish pirates stole Dutch painter Hans Memling's The Last Judgment while it was traveling by ship to Florence. For some unknown reason, the thieves dropped it off at a cathedral in Dansk, Poland, and there it remains to this day in the city's National Museum. Wow. They stole it, they kept it. (laughs) Art thefts are a unique kind of crime. So much so that in 2004, the FBI established the Art Crime Unit to investigate art thefts and forgeries. There are 16 people on the US crime team and two full-time and one part-time on the UK team, which is ironic because 40% of all art thefts occur in the UK, while only 19% take place in the US. To date, they've recovered more than $150 million in stolen art and about 2,600 items. Wow. It's interesting, 40% of all art theft is in the UK. What, globally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus. So 40% UK, 19% US, and the rest of the world, the, the rest of the percentage. Blimey. Mm. In 2008, four paintings by late 19th century masters were stolen from the E.G. Burrell collection in Zurich, making it the largest art theft in Swiss history. The thieves weren't terribly stylish or original. They wore ski masks and dark clothes and waved a gun at the guards while they took them out from behind the glass. Further demonstrating that these weren't the most sophisticated of thieves, Authorities later determined they didn't even grab the most valuable paintings. They just took the first four they saw. Two of the paintings were found in an abandoned car in Zurich, but the other two remain at large. It sounds like they hadn't even cased anything. Just take the first four so we get, you know. (laughs) With most missing art, there's always a chance, however slim, that it would eventually turn up, but some art is simply gone forever. The latter is the case with Picasso's The Pigeon with Green Peas, which was stolen from Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris in 2010 by Virgin Tomic, dubbed Spider-Man due to his penchant for scaling the size of buildings in Paris to steal jewellery, art, and other valuable objects. This nimble burglar managed to evade police for quite some time, but he was caught after this heist thanks to an anonymous tip. Unfortunately, his accomplice panicked and tossed the painting in the trash, and in an unfortunate twist, the trash was emptied and removed before the authorities could find it. He scales the side of buildings to steal jewellery. Yep. But he sounds like a fucking magpie. Yeah, they call him Spider-Man, which I think is kind of cool. I think the magpie would be a better, be a better name. <laughs> Spider-Man's so obvious. There is something about Van Gogh's poppy flowers, also known as Vazen flowers, painting that inspired its theft not once, but twice, from the Mohammed Mahmoud Khalil Museum in Egypt. Sorry about the pronunciation on that. The first theft occurred in 1977, but since the Egyptian government refuses to reveal any details about the theft, nobody knows how or why. Whatever happened, the painting was recovered somewhere in Kuwait. All's well that doesn't end well, it seems, as the painting was stolen again in 2010. Aside from the fact that the museum let the same painting get stolen twice, the thieves apparently pushed a couch up against the wall to cut the painting out of its frame and just waltzed out of the museum as casual as can be without attracting the notice of the museum staff. In a stroke of luck for the thieves, it turned out that only seven of the 43 security cameras were on and none of the security alarms were armed. <laughs> Adding insult to injury, the museum wasn't even busy that day, so there's really no excuse for anything like that to have happened. <laughs> the government's best guess is that it was an inside job, but the painting is still MIA. Damn. That is a terrible museum. <laughs> <laughs> and my last bit here. The most stolen painting in the world is Rembrandt's portrait of Jacob de Guerne III, clocking in at four times. The first theft occurred in 1966 when thieves stole it from the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London, sorry, the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London, along with eight other paintings. The thief abandoned two Rembrandts under a bush, and the rest were found under a bench in a cemetery. The second time the Rembrandt portrait was stolen was far more comical. The thief walked out of the museum with the painting under his sweater, but he didn't get too far. He was found cycling around London's South Circular with the painting in the bike's basket. As for why he stole the painting, it wasn't for money or any sinister reason. It simply reminded him of his mother. Oh, 
Yeah. That's nice. He should be allowed to keep it, surely. Uh, yeah, you know, that's there's just let the shoppy boss. I can't it. believe as someone that's lived just outside London my entire life, I said Dulwich instead of Dulwich. <laughs> you get you have to hand in your UK card if you do that, I think. Well, you know, I've got intuitive pronunciations, mate. Reading and speaking at the same time for the internet, not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. Thank you very much for listening. We're off to record the premium content now. Uh, I'm going to be reviewing Coming to America. Yes, as in the coming... Two, as in the two. As in two, as in in the the number two. Yeah, the digit. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stuff about this one, so I'm I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts. uh, I've got what I hope is going to be an interesting and nuanced review on that one. (laughs) Um, So we're going to have a bit of discussion as well about what the fuck happened to Eddie Murphy. And uh, Liam, I believe you've got a fair bit of content this week. What are you doing? Uh, Yeah, well, sadly, we lost uh, Monty Hellman the other day, and he actually had quite a significant contribution to the world of film, but there are three films of his in particular that I am a very big fan of. And so I just wanted to talk a bit about them. And uh, I also wanted to take a look at Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans. Mm. I believe we watched this film together, didn't we? We did indeed. Because I absolutely adore the Abel Ferreira one, but I also absolutely adore the Werner Herzog one. Does and this mean I get to do my Herzog? Absolutely, yeah. Excellent. And uh, I, I've tweeted about it um, in various forms recently. It's about thought, life and death and all things. Yeah, well, it's it's all it's like a I mean, it's a mad hodgepodge of things, really. That film, in the best way possible. You can't see me, but I don't know why I did the Italian thing where you hold your hand like you're holding a tiny, tiny object. It's Italo-German sinister <laughs> sort of body language. But yeah, I I, I love that. I, I actually think that it's ultimately become an underrated Nick Cage piece in the. 12 years since its release now, so I just wanted to wax a bit lyrical about the virtues of that film and why I think it's very good. Excellent. Well, if you fancy checking out our premium content, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. Uh, You can follow us at Cinementalcast on Twitter and you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. Okie dokie. Well, that's it for the free one this week. Hope to see you on the premium stuff. If not, free one next week. Thank you, people. Take it easy, guys. (laughs) 